0: Such a great time already this morning. How many of you appreciated Andy and the team and the worship time? I had a couple of thoughts before I get started. Um, I had this idea, and I know it's true, that uh, any suffering we have or any suffering that we face... Um, has, has to be limited it has to be limited and any solutions we have from God has to be limitless and that's a great, that's a great thing to think because how many of you realize there's, there's a part of your mind that's not friendly to you yeah, and people that study um, study the mind know there's an aspect of your mind which, uh, you, you know, where does this stuff even come from? Some of your ideas and some of your thoughts, well, this, they're plainly just not accurate. And you can tell who's listening to that. Those are the crazy people listening to the bad stuff or the depressed or the hostile people. But it's a challenge. How many of you know it's a challenge to... Not believe what you think. Can you go there? Yeah. Anyway, it's an interesting idea, but suffering is limited. God's solution for us is limitless, and that's, that's the right perspective. We can't afford to magnify our problems beyond our solution, capital S solution, God. God, okay. Punishment here in our church is if you're late, you have to sit on the front row. <laughs> and we love punishing people, actually. we I'm glad we have enough uh, people coming that people have to sit on the front row. Anyway, moving right along, okay. Anyway, I'm feeling pretty good. I didn't feel good last week. My back hurt, but... My back pain is limited, and my healing is limitless. so amen. Okay, one thing I want to do is reference the International Bible Standard Encyclopedia, and it 's probably also Eastern Bible Dictionary, because in talking about uh, John the Baptist this morning, a lot of this is a um, cert- certain amount of it sort of academic. And um, But by the time we get done, I'll promise you I'm coming after you. So be prepared to defend yourself from God's help. <laughs> That's pretty funny, I thought. <laughs> I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to that other strange person. So anyway, is the, uh, slide number one up there? That's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Ebony Williams does that. Is she here today? Where is she? Wave at me if you're here. Well, she's either here or not here, depending on whether or not she wanted to wave. But uh, she's done these overheads for us. Can I have fun this morning? Do I have permission, you know, just to not care what you think? <laughs> That's sort of a oxymoron right there. it? <laughs> You're going to have to keep up with me. I have that rare sense of, oh, no, and um, you will either be the victim or the beneficiary, depending on whatever it depends on. (laughs) Okay, John the Baptist. What a man. How many of you know you don't mess with people like John the Baptist? Um, Let's read this together. Why don't we stand up, everybody but me? And um, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one, crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan. What were they doing when they were being baptized by him? How nervous does that make anybody in this room? They were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." Okay, you, you may be seated. That gives you a pretty good idea of who John the Baptist is and how he thinks. And um, one, of the, one of the things that interested me about him, a number of things, but one thing I thought about was that he was um, what you would call an aesthetic. Ascetic. He lived, lived a very spartan, sparse life. And yet when he preached, he didn't preach that you have to live that kind of lifestyle. Matter of fact, um, he had he had different uh, corrections and encouragement from, from different people at different times. But, you know, it's amazing when people um, have strong convictions and they don't impose those kind of strong convictions on you. I think it's a remarkable, remarkable thing. But he said enough to make people mad without doing that, you know. Um, if he ran for uh governor or mayor, he probably would not be elected in that particular area where he lived, brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. So, he's pretty pretty rugged guy. Now, this is um this idea, this message this about John the Baptist is um, included in our study of the book of Matthew. What we're doing, we're going to study the book of Matthew for a number of months and cover a lot of the ideas and concepts that come from it. And um, we actually began our study of the book of Matthew with our candlelight celebration when we focused on the birth of Jesus on Christmas Eve. And um, I was not here, but I listened to it. Actually, if you miss our messages and you want them, you can hear them over at queencity.church. But Andy spoke last week about the tension between suffering and miraculous intervention. And he tied it into the early life of Jesus where the angel of the Lord spoke to Jesus or actually spoke to Joseph to flee from Israel because um, of Herod. And after he fled, there was that terrible scene where all the two-year-old children in that region of uh, Bethlehem were slaughtered by King Herod. And, of course, if you didn't listen to that message, you really need to hear it. Because Andy um, tied together the idea that life includes both suffering and miraculous deliverance. And... um it's hard, really, it's hard to figure how that works, but if you don't understand that's part of life, uh, what happens to you can really cripple you if, if you have sort of wrong understandings or wrong expectations. I remember when a member of our staff a number of years ago, uh, got cancer and we saw, we saw the Lord deliver him. At least three times and finally, finally it got him and he died and uh, somebody said, what are you going to do now that he's gone? I said, I'm, I'm going to pray for the next guy. That's what you do. Yeah, it, you waste your time being angry with God and um, arguing with what goes on. Particularly things you can't do anything about. Actually, it's the enemy's plan to deplete what energy you do have to be, um, someone who brings a value to life, to other people. And so, uh, I've heard this and I think it's just, it's, it's a marvelous idea. The only argument you lose with reality is the one you have. Yeah, to spend your life saying something shouldn't have happened is a waste. Guess what? It did. It happened, whatever that thing might be in your life. And so um I think Andy really brought those two elements together in a in a very encouraging way. So you should you should listen to that if you didn't hear it last week. Now, I mentioned this already, but to continue providing background so you'll understand where we're headed. After Jesus' birth, the jealousy of Herod, the Hebrew king, was awakened when a group of prominent wise men came to Israel seeking the newborn king of the Jews. How many of you know the Bible never said there were three wise men? Everybody understand that? Yeah, that's not, you know. I think there was a whole crowd of them. An angel appeared to Joseph in a dream warning him to leave Israel for Egypt to protect the child from Herod's jealous rage. The Bible reveals that these wise men had lavished valuable gifts of gold, frankincense, and upon Jesus and his family, this rich offering sustained them while they lived in Egypt from between a few months to a few years. Isn't that remarkable? Um, when Jesus just, I don't know, some of this stuff intrigues me, when Jesus was... Eight days old, they circumcised him. And how many of you know what offering they brought to the circumcision? It was a turtle dove because a turtle dove is what poor people brought for offerings instead of lambs. So what am I getting to? I'm getting to this. The wise men were not there when Jesus was born. They came later when Jesus was already living in a house just prior to that two-year period when... Herod decided to kill all of those children. And Joseph and Mary apparently didn't have enough money for the kind of offering people with any means had. But apparently they had enough money to live in Egypt without a job and not knowing anybody for who knows months to years. Why? It's because that offering that the wise men brought, that gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here's the wonderful thing. I'm just going to bring this into the message. We have a great opportunity to help another congregation, James Scott. He's an African-American pastor, and he's literally across the parking lot from us. And the idea here is, when I think about the wise men, the wise men gave what they had, and it sustained the life of the Messiah. Well, we have an opportunity to give what we have to help James Scott and his congregation Minister to a lot of inner city um, people that, you know, every church sort of has what they can and can't do, what they're good at and what they're not good at. That's not what we're good at. But when we know people who are good at something and we appreciate it, we want to help them. And... um, of everything, this is really true, of everything I've ever been involved in, the thing I have the most satisfaction out of is the fact that we can help him finish his church so he can save, um, the lives of kids who, and keep them from going through some of the horror stories some kids in inner cities have gone through. And, um, i I met a couple of guys who wanted to help raise money. And so we have already, through our congregation and these two other guys, raised $45,000 to give him. He already has it for his air conditioning. And, um, I think over $20,000, like, like $23,000 that's come from this congregation. Part of it out of our budget in faith and part of it people have already given to it. And so at the end of the month, we're going to have an offering and try to raise um, he needs sixty thousand dollars. I think I know where another fifteen is from some other people. But we try to raise another six or seven thousand dollars for him. That would, he would have his facility finished. Now, here's the wonderful thing: he's already feeding people all over town, but this facility gives him a place for a congregation and also a place where he can do after school and summer camps for kids that are going to get in trouble if they don't have something worthwhile to do. So this is just a tremendous opportunity, and here's what it does. It does it fights three different battles. It says we're not territorial with another church, number one. He's across the parking lot. Most churches are trying to put up a fence, keep those people either coming to our church or leaving. Number one, it's, we're not territorial. Number two, we're fighting this battle about whether or not we're going to be generous. And number three, it's it's about... Racial appreciation. It's about doing something for other, uh, for, you know, particularly James and his, his congregation. They're predominantly African-American. Because I, I thought one day, I said, what have I ever done to help race relations? And here's the answer. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It's more about what I haven't done. I haven't used the N-word. I haven't been derogatory towards other minorities. But not doing that thing is not the same thing as actually doing something. And we have an opportunity to to, to do something. So um, I was pretty slick pulling all that out of the wise men, wasn't it? But um, (laughs) anyway. One of the messianic prophecies is about the Messiah, which was a very peculiar prophecy. It was out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, see, that's what happened. At a given point, um, Herod dies, and an angel appears again in a dream to Joseph and tells him it's safe to return from Egypt to, to Israel. So they come back, decide to settle in Nazareth. So that sort of sets the stage on what's going on in the book of Matthew up until up until now. Um, I was thinking about this, too. The next time we see Jesus from the time of the sort of the whole nativity birth of Christ, we don't see him again until he's about 12 years old. And the only information we have about him after his return from Egypt until his public ministry is uh, the story about him traveling to Jerusalem with his family to celebrate the Passover, when he went with a large extended family. And at 12 years old, Jesus decided to stay in Jerusalem, but didn't tell his parents. And so they left, and apparently they traveled by family, and um, because there was a large enough group of them that apparently Mary and Joseph thought, Jesus is just with our company of people. Now, here's who I think was in that company of people. His cousins, James and John, were probably there. I have this idea that Jesus probably knew um, upwards of half to three-quarters of his disciples from childhood. And I could go prove that to you if I needed to, but I don't have time. And John the Baptist was a cousin. It's, it's amazing what God wants to do with family groups. But anyway, they assumed he was in the company of those returning, and after today his parents realized he was not, so they go back to Jerusalem, and it takes them three days to find Jesus, and he's in the temple. So we find this in Luke chapter 2, verse 46 through 49, and I'll read this to you, or you can look it up on your... How many of you read the Bible? Anybody read to read? Okay. That's yes, the book in the Bible. Doug. That's Doug Corwin. I'm making fun of Doug this morning. He's got on a Panthers t-shirt, and I'm afraid we're fighting a losing battle, bro. I just don't have that good a feel. We prayed last week, and they got beat. I'm not praying this week. That ain't working. (laughs) Oh, my. In closing, Luke chapter 2. Now, so it was that after three days, they found Jesus in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when Mary and Joseph saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? Twelve-year-old. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Well, that tells you a lot about Jesus at 12 years old. He was very aware of who he was, and he was very um, uh, confident at 12 years old. I mean, he just took a four-day trip away from mom and dad, just forgot to tell them. (laughs) Now, the Passion Translation, um, Brian Simmons' translation, quotes that, that that last little part, which are the very first words of Jesus recorded in the Bible. They, he, he writes them this way or translates this way. Why would you need to search for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be here in my father's house consumed with him? And so after that, there are 18 around 18 silent years until Jesus reappears on the scene, which brings us to the introduction of John the Baptist. And so let me read through some of this. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus in his ministry. He was of priestly descent. His father, Zacharias, was a priest. His mother, Elizabeth, was one of the daughters of Aaron, priestly family. And John's mission was prophesied in Isaiah 40 and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Angels foretold his birth, which took place six months before that of Jesus. Mary and Elizabeth were related, and John the Baptist was probably Jesus' cousin. Zacharias lost his power of speech when he didn't believe the angel's message about the birth of his son, and um god restored his speech when the child was circumcised and um then you really have no more record of john the baptist for 30 years other than what's mentioned in luke chapter 1 verse 80 which says this so the child grew became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to israel and so if you if you compare john and jesus um relative Uh, lifestyle or how they grew up john the baptist grew up in very strange surroundings he grew up in a wilderness Uh, he had a strange diet honey and locust i guess he had other things but that seemed to be a big part of his diet and jesus seemed to grow up a pretty normal child (laughs) you know what was normal about jesus but um Anyway, the other thing was John was a Nazarite from birth, and a Nazarite was, uh, they swore, I believe it was to not cut their hair, and um, not to drink wine or strong drink. But the interesting thing about John the Baptist, and it really doesn't say this, doesn't even say this about Jesus, is John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So, in the Bible, a mysterious. How many of you like the Bible? It's a mysterious book. If, um, yeah, if you understand all of it, come see me and help me. So, John spends his early years in the mountainous region of Judah between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, and he lived there until the day of his public appearance. And then, when he shows up, he's dressed in camel's hair clothing. And they talk again about his strange diet. And so you can sort of look at this actually austere character who Jesus would later say was the fulfillment of the promise that Elijah the prophet was going to make another appearance. And he comes from nowhere. One uh, One of the other gospels says that the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. And there's this reality that God can speak to people and the the simple act of him speaking or giving you a message or giving someone a message can radically transform your life. And I, I really like that. How many of you want God to really speak to you? Yeah, four of us. Awesome. So John the Baptist suddenly appears. And great multitudes from every quarter were attracted to his preaching, focused on the necessity of repentance and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And to John the Baptist, repentance was a very real and radical thing. It meant a complete change of heart and life. Here's what he would say. He would say, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Well, what were these fruits? Well he made it clear when he answered um the tax collectors and the soldiers who came to him. Um he told the tax collectors, don't collect more money than you're supposed to collect. And he told he did not tell the soldiers you're not supposed to be soldiers because God's a pacifist. Smack. He said, Be a good soldier. Don't harm people. How many of you realize Ah, oh, never mind. Okay. He denounced the Sadducees and the Pharisees as a generation of vipers. And he warned them of the foolishness of trusting in external privileges, meaning they trusted their um, lineage, they trusted who they came from uh, when it came to their standing before God. And John the Baptist just plainly said, No, that doesn't work. You need to repent. You need to demonstrate a life that's changed, and your behavior needs to reflect that. So actually, I think I left that over there. But you see, John did not preach the kind of message a typical Jewish person would appreciate. He didn't say, here's how you get forgiven. Take an animal to the temple. No, he said this, your heart needs to break. You need to have a change of heart that is reflected in your in a change of behavior. Now, here's the marvelous thing. This is how he prepared the way for Jesus to be the most effective in a person's life. And see, without true repentance, without a brokenness of heart, without a heart conversion, you will not... Radically and accurately reveal the love of God or the life of God. And it may be that you're just religious. You may really have no actual connection to God at all. I mean, everybody has some connection to God. He created everybody. But you know what I'm saying? When it comes down to practical relationship with Jesus, just because you go to church, that ain't nothing. Well, it is something. It at least throws you in a category of hearing something that could change your life. But, But John the Baptist got beheaded for his message. He rebuked the king of Israel and said, you have no business taking your brother's wife. So they put him in jail and cut his head off. That's a bad day, right? But it was a day. That's a wonderful way to look at it. Okay, you got beheaded. It just happened. It was one day. You had a lot of other days where you didn't get beheaded. Now, you may think that's ridiculous. That's not ridiculous. We exaggerate all our issues. Now, I do not want to be beheaded, but it it can only last so long. And your head's gone and your nervous system is severed and... uh, you know, we, mag- oh, come on. we magnify our problems. Oh, it's the end of the world. No, nah, you just got your head cut off. <laughs> Life is going on. Now, that's not harsh. There's a reality to it. We, we cannot magnify our heartaches. And, and I'm going to show you the reason we have some of them. Okay, everybody all right? <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, Jesus hears about John the Baptist and his ministry. So guess what he does? He comes and gets baptized by John. The sin, Listen, people, and here's what we're going to do in the spring. In the spring, we're going to buy a swimming pool and we're going to put it out here in the yard. We're going to baptize people. Because we're at fault for not doing that on a regular basis. Now, if you're in an Arab culture and you say you love Jesus, nobody cares. But if you get baptized, they kill you. In Muslim, strict Muslim um, cultures. Because there's something significant about water baptism. There's something significant about it. It it makes a statement in the heavenly realm and in the earthly realm, it's an act of humility. And I want i want to tell you, you avoid humility at huge peril. You really do. So we're going to have a baptism. And if Jesus, who did no sin, was willing to be baptized by John, why can we refuse? Who are sinful people and that's an amazing thing there's so much arrogance among spiritual people let me put that a different way there's so much arrogance among spiritual people (laughs) no there's a better way to put it i'm just gonna say the same thing again and what do i mean i mean this john okay look at jesus wonderful jesus here's john guess who john was to jesus old order The old thing. What does Jesus do? He gets the old thing to baptize him because he knows it's the righteous and honorable thing to do. That's, that's amazing. If you understand, some of you are here, long, been around long enough to know how narrow people are and how people um, tend to despise the things that they think are less than who they are. Well that's a terrible thing. We should never despise anybody. So, what messages can we gain from from John the Baptist's life? Number 1, I've got I've got 4 I want to talk about. Or maybe 3, but they'll be good enough. Repentance is essential. For us to change, We must take personal responsibility for our behavior. Quiet. That's that's essential for us to change, is you have to take personal responsibility for your behavior. Um, True repentance of heart is proven by a change in the way you live, a change in behavior. Now, here's the wonderful thing. What did John, You know, John the Baptist called uh, some of the Pharisees and Sadducees um, a brood of vipers. But you know what he said to a brood of vipers? You know what he said to who he thought were the worst of the worst? Uh, the wor- what is the worst of the worst? The worst of the worst is people that are not holy who are proud of their holiness and despise other people. To John, that was the worst of the worst. He called them a brood of vipers. He didn't call the tax collectors a brood of vipers. And you see, there's this tricky condition of heart people have where you presume that you are something that you are not, but your attitudes will betray you. If you're condescending, if you're narrow, if you're critical, if you're an accuser, do you know your life can be ruined not by what you've done, but through the simple process of having been accused of having done something. And if we are accusers, what we, what we do is we align ourselves with the worst function of the devil himself, who is the accuser of the brethren. And so if you are a person prone to criticize people, you have a serious serious problem that you may not fully recognize. And don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. I'm serious though. Humility is a virtue we can, we will only reject to our own peril. And so what John preached was this. You need to be baptized, confessing your sins. Man, if I push this thing too hard, this church is going to go down to like 14 people. And those would be the 14 people that hadn't been paying attention. <laughs> but true repentance of heart is proven by change in behavior. If any man be in Christ, behold, all things are passed away. Everything has become... New. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm really going after this because my topic today is John the Baptist, and he did it. What happened when John the Baptist preached? Then Jerusalem, all Judea, say all. All Judea. All the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. He had such a tremendous anointing to to bring to people's awareness how important it was for them to search their hearts and be honest before God about who they were, that the entire region was stirred. Do you know what John the Baptist Never did a miracle, a sign, or a wonder. And yet Jesus called him the greatest man born of a woman. And then Jesus, but Jesus was a completely different person. Jesus... Jesus, from everything I've understood and the way I've gotten to know him over the years, and what I read in the Bible, it says he had an anointing of joy above all of his brethren. Jesus, listen, Jesus, although he was going to suffer the worst kind of death ever, was essentially a very happy person. You know, the gospel means the good, glad, happy news that makes one jump for joy. But you will not fully... Enjoy the gospel until you take inventory of who you are, what kind of person you are. And, and n- not so that you'll stay there because, you know what, true repentance is just not acknowledging your sin. That's phase one. Phase two is recognizing you can't do anything about what a wretch you are anyway. But when you acknowledge it, you turn to God and God begins to make these changes on your behalf through you. Because I'm not putting on you some burden too large to bear. Here's the problem. God doesn't want to change you. He wants you to recognize that you are so hopeless, he crucified you with Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah, he do not want to change you. He, he wants you to... When you can recognize how hopeless you really are and look to Jesus, you will experience the highest quality of life, the most effective lifestyle, your, your gifts will develop, your abilities will flourish because you will have tapped into what God wants you to have from the beginning. That's why the gospel really is good news. The bad news part is only dealing with what is real that you didn't pay any attention to. But the good news is this. God cares so much about you that he brought someone who died on your behalf, who sent back a powerful, the powerful Holy Spirit, who will gladly take residence inside of you and make up for each of every one of your deficiencies. Because when it comes right down to it, you can't do it anyway. Jesus himself said, I of myself can do nothing. And then he was a walking, talking, miracle working man. How? He himself knew he had to be tapped into his father by the Holy Spirit just like the rest of us need to be. He didn't come to show us how God would live. He came to show us how a man or a woman or a child can live who is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's good news. I got six amen and one hoot. Ah, I can live with that. Now, repeat after me. Repentance is essential. But it's not really feeling bad about yourself. It's dealing with who you are and then tapping into more than who you are. Okay? Yes. Okay. Messages from John the Baptist's life. Life is hard. How many of you know that life is hard? John sixteen thirty three. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You see, that ties us back into last week's message about um, how victory and sorrow are somehow part and parcel of the same life. Um, One of the things, though, I think it's so essential to recognize, community... Everybody talks about community. You hear people talking about community all the time, right? But a lot of times we talk about things we don't really do. You know what I used to do before I wrote books? I talked about writing books. And a lot of us don't recognize that our talking takes the place of actually doing the things we're talking about. If you're a writer, write Write. Write something. Don't talk about writing something. Right? And here's what's going to happen. The first thing you're going to write is going to be pitiful. Because writing's, life is hard. Writing's hard. I've written two books. They were hard. They're good. Buy them. Oh, no. Um... <laughs> <laughs> my capitalistic concepts jumped in there on me but um no community is not just something we talk about it's it's something we begin to participate in and it's not easy but you know the only thing harder than participating in a community is living your own isolated life right andy yeah sure but community and relationships help. Andy was so committed to community; he had seven hundred children. How many kids you got? He lives in. He he is you know, the the squires don't need a community; they are one. And then they added this character to the crowd. What are you going to do? All right, he'll they'll start having kids. Andy, it's going to get worse. I mean, it's going to get better. But community and relationships help us process and develop, say process. The understanding of a process is you will be different at the end of it that you are at the beginning of it, but you will not change if you don't walk through it. That's what a process, and everything comes by process. Most everything. Very few instantaneous things. But they help us develop through the hardships and the challenges. And I made this comment. Doing life together is hard. Doing it alone is much harder. And and you, you you need to realize that. And here's another thing about life being hard. The trial of your faith is more precious than gold. And I do not like that verse. I do not like trials. I like instantaneous Ongoing, permanent victory. I don't know anybody who lives that way, but that's what I want. Rick Joyner, a friend of mine, used to say, here's, you know, one guy said, no pain, no gain. Rick says, no pain, no pain. (laughs) I want as pain-free an existence as humanly possible, as does the rest of us. But here's the key. Life can be more painful than necessary if you're not paying attention. Really. it really, Wisdom is so important. I'm going to tell you experience is not the best teacher. Somebody else's experience is my best teacher. Come on. That's tweet-worthy. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why, Peter? So that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus. Now, listen, don't waste your trials. A friend of mine used to say that uh, you never ultimately fail one of God's tests. You just keep taking it. That's, that's both wonderful and scary. We think we can avoid certain things. You know what I'm saying? You can't. There are certain things you're going to go through. Turn to yourself and say, "There are certain things I'm going to go to. But don't waste your trials. If you handle your trials well, it enables you to not fold under pressure. You know, the world is looking for people that don't break and bend and cry and moan and bellyache and complain and yak around about how terrible things they are. No. No, if, if you can learn through your trials, you, God can put something in you that will sustain you so that when the next one comes, you don't fold. You become a remarkable person. You become a person people look to. You become a resource. My goodness, a human resource. You become an HR department of your own. So, don't dissipate the strength of the trial. I'm not saying don't dissipate the strength of the trial. Avoid whatever you can. But don't dissipate the strength the trial can bring through complaining. That landed. But it's true. If you think about this, the next time you go through something... Do everything you can not to complain. And at the end of it, you will discover a deposit you did not have before. Trials fortify resilience and perseverance. They can, or they can destroy us. You know what I'm saying? But if we get destroyed by these things, it's because we don't understand the heart of God. We don't understand the nature of God. We don't understand what we have at our disposal for resource. Realize that despair is an illusion and hope is permanent. Don't reinforce your sorrow by overemphasizing it. It's not the end of the world. It just feels like it. And it's temporary. How many people have made ter- oh who've made terrible mistakes because you folded under pressure when, when deliverance was close, like Esau. Who for a bowl of soup gave up his birthright gave, gave up an eternal gift from God over a bowl of soup. Crazy. I could understand a cheeseburger. <laughs> Oh, my. (laughs) That is so good. When you see your trials all the way through, not settling for bitterness, resentment, and or anger... But moving through those stages, how many of you know those are stages? It's not like if you're angry or bitter or resentful, it's the end of the world. If you understand that is a thing you're processing through, that's what the Lord is trying to help you overcome. So don't let the enemy keep you there by identifying the fact that you have some of it. You discover several things if you process all the way through. You discover that the Lord is faithful. You discover that the Lord is good, and you realize you have become a much better person. You're kinder. You're more sensitive to other people's pain, and you become more capable of helping and comforting other people. In 2 Corinthians 1 says this, and I'll close. Verse 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ." Our comfort cannot be less than our problem because our problem is a natural, human, temporal thing. Our comfort is eternal. Our comfort is a victorious one who has overcome all of our difficulties, who has a has ability to give us joy that will pull us out of the deepest place we may find ourselves. And then Paul writes this, Now... If we are afflicted, say that with me. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And see, you're going to suffer things that have nothing to do with the character flaw. Nothing to do with what you did wrong or didn't do right. But God sees in you. I know this person will make it through. Now, I'm not saying God puts on us everything we go through. But when you're in it, here's what he's thinking. This guy's a winner. This gal's a winner. I know they will come out of this, and they will be able to comfort others. Where is that church that lives for other people instead of living for themselves? Come on. Complaining, belly aching, woe is me. I don't want to go through something to help you. But if I'm already in it, if I don't have any choice, I'm going to go through that thing so that I can be the best I can be for somebody else who may not have the benefit of my insight, my years in God, my opportunities, my revelation, my impact, what God's done in me. The the <coughs> the. Va- the investment God has put in me, how dare I squander that thing? How dare I throw that thing away? How dare I dissipate that thing through resentment or bitterness or self-focus when it could do somebody else some good who has not had the opportunities, who has not had the insight, who has not had the history that I myself might have had. But Paul says this, if we're afflicted, it's so we can console you. If we're comforted, it's so we can give that same kind of comfort to you as well. Amen. Amen. Okay. Okay. I think I have done my due diligence. Praise God. Let's bless the Lord. Let's thank him. Come on. Hey, you know, Andy touched on this. Bill Johnson's touched on it, and I've seen it. My dad basically dropped dead at 62. I have the uh, remarkable privilege of being older than my father. By five years. That's a weird thing to think about. It was a tragedy. But you know what? After it happened, I had to recognize good came from it. Let me tell you what good came from it. When my dad passed away, I was not on good terms with him. I'm on good terms with my kids. To the best of my knowledge. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure they have pockets of resentment for not taking them to Disney world. And, uh, I just couldn't go. (laughs) (laughs) A man has his limitations, (laughs) but they have no idea what I did for them. I married their mother. I gave them the best woman in the world. So that should stand for something. I don't remember what I was talking about. I'm so far off. Anyway. Yes. Bless you, God. You're so good to us, Lord. Lord, we want to live real lives. We don't want to dissipate the goodness you've put in us through lack of vision, lack of revelation, lack of faith. Lord, we're not inviting disaster. We're not inviting trouble. We make no boast that we know how to handle it all. But, Lord, for the portion that we come to, God, grant us grace to be overcomers. Grant us grace to be cheerful, joyful, spirit-filled people. Lord, we want to be human resource department. We want to be HR people. We want to provide comfort and care and hope and help for those who are in the middle of things that they don't understand that they didn't bargain for. Father, we just ask this in Jesus' name. Lord, I, I just love this. Lord, I had such a good time during worship. That was awesome. How many of you felt something special this morning? I really did. If you didn't, I don't know. Praise the Lord. But uh moving right along. Mitch, come up here and rescue me, son. <laughs> I almost broke into that old soul song. Rescue me. (sighs) Lucky I didn't. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah. 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 Thankful for this guy.